0: I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No. I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up!
1: Damn you all to hell! Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and this is another Slate Spoiler Special podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the new Matrix movie, Matrix Resurrections, which is the first in how long, Emily?
0: It is the first Matrix movie in, God, now I have to do math, 18 years, the first since 2003.
1: Good Lord. All right. Well, that was the voice of Emily Vanderwerf, my co-host this week. She is the critic at large at Vox Magazine and also the co-creator of the podcast Arden. Hey, Emily.
0: Hey, it's great to be here.
1: Um, yes, really happy to have you on this movie, especially because you as a knower and longtime fan of this podcast are going to be able to help me understand what happened <laughs> enough that I can write my review.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's that's the plan. That's why I'm here.
1: I mean, I was sitting down yesterday thinking, well, okay, I have to get to the part where I evaluate it, but first I have to get to the part where I understand what the <laughs> hell happened. <laughs> and in this particular movie, both because of the mythology behind it, right, the, the, whole, yeah. the whole mythos preceding it in the three previous movies, and also just because it's a big damn sprawling movie with a lot of characters and a lot of plot Um, it has taken me a while to get there but as I usually do to sort of um, just get the thumbs up thumbs down reaction out of the way I'm going to ask you as a longtime fan of The Matrix which we can talk about more later um, what did you think of this one?
0: I mean, I really loved it. You know, I think it's flawed. I think it has issues. I think there's parts that kind of drag. But I, you know, as a fan of this franchise, but also just as somebody who likes ambitious cinema, I thought this was really spectacular. It, it really hit all the buttons I needed it to.
1: Oh, I can't wait to hear what those were. I mean, I have to say that this is something I can say about every single one of the Matrix movies, even though they're also wildly different, is that every one of them feels like a passion project, yes. you know, like even though there are jokes in this movie and we'll get to them about, you know, cynically creating content. Content for a big corporation, and of course, these movies have generated incredible profit for a huge corporation. Um, th- they always feel like there's something that is very heartfelt on the part of the Wachowskis, or in this case, Lana Wachowski, that that it's something that they had to make, and really, to some surprising degree, had to make just like that. It doesn't feel like a lot of compromises are being made.
0: No, I mean, this is a movie that was co-written by the novelists David Mitchell and Alexander Heyman. Like, it's it's not a movie that you know. I think that Warner Brothers was like, yes, this is the safe choice for a Matrix reboot.
1: The Wachowskis cast a real spell of magic on studio filmmaking when Matrix was that kind of huge sleeper surprise hit in 1999, right? I mean, obviously, it was a big budget movie at the time, and a lot had been banked on it, but nobody expected how it would run away with the box office and the public imagination the way it did.
0: No. And like, the thing about it is it's really remained in the cultural firmament in a way that like so many other movies of that time have not. Like, I just wrote a huge piece about it that by the time you're listening to this will be on the site, uh, Vox. and. it is just sort of about all of the ways that this film series influenced our culture and continues to. And the wild thing about that first movie is it doesn't really feel dated in the way that like a lot of movies from 1999, you know, a, a movie that's a pretty close comparison point for it is Fight Club. And I really like Fight Club, but it is definitely a movie that's showing its age in a way The Matrix just is not.
1: Yeah, I just rewatched the original uh, in preparation for for writing on this one. And how fresh it feels is really sort of extraordinary. I mean, including even the technology, you know, I mean, of course, there's floppy disks and those get a little (laughs) bit like teased in the new movie. And there are things that are of their time, right? The green, you know, numbers sort of flowing down on the screen.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think what's fascinating about The First Matrix is that it's kind of the culmination of those mid-90s movies about hackers, you know, like The Net or etc. But like, it's so cool. Cool And so invigorating and so much itself that you don't find yourself being like, this feels like the net starring Sandra Bullock. Like it is also starting a conversation that we're continuing to have right now. And, and just like the many ways that people have interpreted that first film is something the new film calls out in one of my favorite sequences. But yeah, we'll, we'll get into that in a moment, I'm sure.
1: I'm sure all of these ideas are going to come popping up as we keep going. But can you just briefly, for me and other people who have not seen them ever or in a long time, sort of summarize in, in a big arch narrative way what happens over the next two movies to get us to the point that we're at now with, with Matrix Resurrections?
0: Yeah. Um. So The Matrix Reloaded is kind of secretly my favorite. Like, I think- the Matrix is a perfect movie. I'm not going to sit here and say it's not like the best of these movies, but I think Reloaded is my personal favorite. It is a very strange movie about Neo being the One, and then nobody being quite sure what that means. And they we meet the human city of Zion. We see all these people there, like they like to do raves that turn into orgies, um, and it ends up being about how the One is a construct, and revolutionary movements get co opted by the machine all the time, and like there is no true way to overthrow power because power just keeps reasserting itself. Uh, and then it's also kind of about the power of love. So that's The Matrix Reloaded. There's an amazing action sequence in it, uh, A Chase on a Freeway, that I think is one of the great action sequences of all time. And if nothing else, it's worth watching those. I think it's about 10 minutes. Revolutions is, I think, the weakest movie the Wachowskis have made. Um, they uh, It's a movie that was produced concurrently with Reloaded and it does show. You can see some of the seams. I like this movie. It's it's not my favorite. It has some beautiful sequences in it though. And it sort of ends with Neo and Trinity giving their lives to save humanity from the machines and broker a peace treaty between the two sides. Uh, and it ends with this idea that like now the Matrix is going to be more equitable. People are going to know where they stand in the system and all of that is going to happen. So when that movie ends – Morpheus is alive and Neo and Trinity are dead, which is an interesting setup for where this fourth movie goes.
1: Yeah, well, that makes me even more confused. Having forgotten that they both died at the end of the previous movie. Now I have kind of ontological questions to pile onto my, you know, logistical questions about what was going on in the story. So let's jump into the new movie Matrix Resurrections. It's 18 years later, as you say, in our time. Yes. We're not exactly told how much time has passed in Matrix time. But, you know, as we'll see as we get into this movie, I mean, that's somewhat of an irrelevant question, given how brain bendy this movie is also trying to be. At any rate, we feel like we're in something like the present day or the Matrix. Matrix version of the present day in a city that is not identified at first, but turns out to be San Francisco. Oh, wait, before we even go to San Francisco, there is a, a very top cold open that is almost a direct um, lift of the first scene from the first movie, right?
0: Yes, yes. And this this whole first act is really engaged in the question of why make another Matrix movie in a way that is very fun, I think. But this first scene is setting the stage of, yes, we're going to just directly redo the first scene of the Matrix, and then we're going to have some Matrix super fan surrogates Gets here to comment on what's happening.
1: So before we get into the the frame of the story that involves, you know, Neo in, in, in latter-day form, let's visit this new character, Bugs, who is the first person we meet in the movie. She is the one who is essentially in the, the role that Neo would have been in the first scene of the first movie, right? One who is observing a screen and, you know, observing some kind of glitch in on the screen. Take it away. Who is Bugs?
0: Bugs is the captain of a new ship whose name I'm not going to recall right now because I've only seen this movie once instead of the 17 times I will have seen it by like New Year's Day. Bugs is the captain of the ship and she is examining this weird thing within the The Matrix, which is called a modal, which is basically just a space that uh, programs can sort of work themselves out within an infinitely repeating loop. And it turns out to be the first scene of the original Matrix where Trinity is interrupted by agents and then beats them up. And it's that famously memorable shot of Carrie Ann Moss going up in the middle of the air and then the camera kind of rotates around her that like kind of broke everybody's brain in 1999. They don't directly quote that here, but Lana Wachowski has a lot of fun with the uh, filmmaking of the original. So, So yes, Bugs is coming in. And she's in the position of Neo where she doesn't quite know everything, but she's also in the position of Trinity and Morpheus where she knows more than she maybe should. And um, it's a fascinating choice because she's a character who simultaneously is an audience surrogate and not an audience surrogate at all, unless you think about her being like a Matrix superfan, in which case she's kind of the perfect audience surrogate. She knows everything, but also nothing.
1: Right. Yeah. The superfan framing is one that, you know, once they get to the, to the ship later on, the unnamed ship, they might. I can't remember either, uh, becomes something that various characters in the crew are saying, right? They're coming up to Neo and saying, you know, I'm your biggest fan. And, you know, there's this idea that in the world of the Matrix that we're in now, everybody knows about the the previous world, except that they know it entirely as a video game. And so here's here's where we get into what I find one of the best parts of the movie, this first 20 minutes or so of seeing what Thomas Anderson is up to in his, in his middle age. So as we join him, he works for a company called Binary. I love that. <laughs> An evil corporation known as Binary in San Francisco that is a tech company at which he seems to be this, um, he's both a kind of emeritus designer of games, right? But also kind of a working drone, just as he was at the the top of the first movie. Yeah, he's like
0: treated as a genius, but also they want him to make corporate product. They want him to make interchangeable stuff. And like the fact that he made this groundbreaking uh, trilogy of games is treated as like, yeah, but you could just do that again. Right. Like you could you could just make that happen again. And I think it feels very pointed in terms of um, Lana Wachowski has said that Warner Brothers came to her and Lily, her sister, every year and was like, hey, do you want to do another Matrix? And they said, no, they said, no, they said, no, they said, no. "No." And then Lana sort of claims that uh, she had this idea of this story about Neo and Trinity that came to her in a moment um, after the death of her parents. And she felt this comfort in having these familiar characters she had loved back with her. But also you watch this first 20 minutes and you're like, is this just Lana Wachowski telling Warner Brothers that she's sick of them asking her to make a Matrix movie? So here's one, all right.
1: Well, this is what my viewing companion asked me on the the escalator down. And I did not know what to say. It was sort of like those really delicious scenes with Jonathan Groff, right? Jonathan Groff being his boss at the binary tech company. And I think also, isn't he kind of a latter-day digital incarnation of the Hugo Weaving character from the first movie? Yes, he's a
0: reincarnation of Smith in a weird way that is, I think... The movie itself is pretty close-ended. It is not necessarily setting up a quote-unquote new trilogy, but if you were going to make a new one, the Jonathan Groff character would be the natural choice for an antagonist in the next movie. So, like, it is a character that is... Meant to be Smith and also kind of Smith adjacent and also kind of his own thing. And like, I I love it. I think Groff is one of the better uh, new performances in the movie, but like, it's definitely something where you have to kind of wrap your brain around the idea that like, well, if Smith was a program, then he could just be somebody else.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I guess at this point, according to you, we've already had to wrap our heads around the idea that Neo is dead and yet is, is back alive again. No. So is, was he reincarnated? I mean, we've seen people in the in the Matrix universe before come back to life after dying. Right. But it's not explained in this movie, at least that I saw, that he and Trinity had previously died. I mean, maybe this is just a comic book style reboot where they just came back to life again
0: they do explain it but you kind of have to go in knowing they died to to understand the explanation like there is the scene of his they do a lot of cutting in of scenes from the the first three movies there is a scene you see the footage of him being borne up by the machines in sort of a classically Christ figure pose you see the ship crash that takes Trinity's life like you you have those moments that are, are flashbacked to uh, flashed back to and then you You do have the moment when the film's main antagonist says how he uh, brought them back and he does he like re- recreated their bodies he like rebuilt them uh, it took him a long time blah 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 like he does bring that all up it's just it's one of those things where you really have to be looking for it as I was to know that it's coming and you could go into this movie and just be like yeah these are reincarnations of Neo and Trinity because within the original Matrix uh, chronology Neo has been reborn many different times and Like, you could just be like, yeah, this is just another Neo. And I think you'd have just as much fun as me digging through it like someone who's read The Matrix Wikipedia too many times.
1: (laughs) All right. I'm glad you have for this next section, though. Before we get to Act 2 and start to discover the glitches in The Matrix that get older Neo mixed all up in it again, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
0: Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DVD report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. All
1: right. So Emily, we need to we need to move on to the moment that the Matrix jumps into the Matrix, uh, but I wanted to just quickly nod at that montage sequence that Maybe not ends, but comes toward the end of the of this first frame of 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 Neo and his middle age, you know, miserably slogging away at a tech company. Because I just love that part of the movie. So there's this montage with the possibly two on the nose song, uh, "White Rabbit," right by by Jefferson Airplane.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, "White Rabbit" is such a potent imagery within the original film. And one of the things I do love about it is it's this. There's all these people talking about what does the Matrix mean? You know, what is the point of the Matrix? And like. Lana Wachowski calls out every single like popular theory on what the film trilogy was about, you know, whether it was about um, crypto fascism, whether it was about trans identities, and just sort of is like, it's kind of about all of those things. It's kind of about none of those things. You can't recapture that. You can't recreate it. And throughout, there's just this sense of drudgery of like Neo being forced to do this thing. It does feel the most pointedly like she's saying, come on, Warner Brothers, this is all you want from me now.
1: But see, this was a I was having on the escalator with my friend and I believe as I said at the top of the show that this movie is a passion project in all its weirdness and exactly what she wanted to make Yes, right and that uh, to an impressive degree almost everyone in the cast and crew of of the movie seem to be on the same page about this bizarre amalgam of things that it is and that it just doesn't seem likely that 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 WB scene is is settling scores or is confessional or autobiographical it seems more like you know poking fun at, at the man as this movie you know has the latitude to do because of the huge success of the series
0: And like, she loves doing that sort of thing. She loves that kind of meta textual commentary. I definitely feel like this sequence is just her having fun with the idea of everyone being like, oh, you're making another Matrix movie. OK, let's going back to the old well, because a lot of this movie is about that. And I feel like that's teeing up that idea.
1: So let's talk about the moment that um, that Neo breaks out right, or, or starts to discover again that he is Neo. I mean, we've sort of seen during this miserable opening sequence about his depressing job that he gets these, these gl- glitches and these moments that he sort of remembers, you know, the thing that once happened to him, but sort of remembers it as a video game. Right? Right. He himself is not able to believe in the reality of these, these glimpses of things that he's having. But what's the moment that you know reality really bursts in on him in in this in this version? I mean, it's bit more or less the moment, right, that he would have met Morpheus in the original Matrix.
0: Yeah. Here he meets Morpheus again again, but it's not quite Morpheus. It's uh, a character played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen, who is a wonderful actor. Uh, You might know him from the Watchmen TV series. Uh, He is the new Morpheus, but he's also Smith, but he's also a creation of Neo who built him into the Matrix video game so that he would learn to become Morpheus so he could help Neo break free of his (laughs) his imprisonment. Just when I talk about the literal, just like plot (laughs) details of this movie that I think the movie honestly explains pretty well, like the core things you need to know to understand it. They just sound so bonkers. They just (laughs) sound like I'm, they sound like I'm a four-year-old who's like, and then this happens and then this, and like, that's what I love about these movies. But also I want to acknowledge that anyway, uh, he pops up in the bathroom and, uh, I believe that's the sequence we're talking about, right?
1: Yeah. When he has the bright yellow suit on. Yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: He pops up in the bathroom, he tells uh, Neo what's up, and Neo doesn't want to hear this information. And it just is such a fun idea that like, he had to invent Morpheus, but then he also has to pretend he doesn't know who Morpheus is. A lot of this movie engages with our current moment in pop culture where everything is – heavy air quotes around this – about trauma – but also in a way that is pretty clear that somebody involved in it has gone through intense trauma therapy. Like every single moment of this movie tracks on pretty closely with something called cognitive processing therapy, which is a pretty common way to treat trauma. And yet the movie doesn't, re- it has moments when like Neil Patrick Harris is like, you were traumatized, Neil, but it doesn't really delve into it in the way that I think some of these other movies that are again, heavy air quotes about trauma have. And I think that's a fascinating thing about it. Anyway, this is where sort of where that theme is introduced.
1: And how is that theme introduced? I mean, how do you see the, the the elements of that therapeutic style or any sort of you know thinking about trauma, you know, flowing out of these these first scenes where he encounters the matrix?
0: Well, I, I'm reading my own experience into this because I've been through CPT and I, I have these moments in in my past that I I want to ignore. And the appearance of Morpheus as like you invented me as this character who could remind you of a time you needed to be reminded of and could break you out of your programming is very similar to like the way that like a repressed memory resurfaces the way that you suddenly have this image of something you've never thought about before and it when he pops into the bathroom in that moment Morpheus really feels like he's just like a memory that has emerged from Neo's subconscious and become real. So it is really this idea that strikes me as pretty uh, intrinsic to the ways that people process trauma that, like, Neo went through this terrible thing, which we know as the Matrix trilogy. And we know this happened, and we're waiting for him to remember. And the film structures it as him basically unrepressing one of these memories in the form of this character that he himself invented.
1: So, Emily, in the swirl of events that follow, help me understand what Neil Patrick Harris, who plays Neo's therapist, or Thomas Anderson's therapist, rather, is is doing in this, in this sequence of events by which Neo gets dragged back to the Matrix world. I mean, the non-Matrix world. What are we calling it? Zion, the spaceship. Reality? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why can't I accept that this is my reality? <laughs> I'm still delusional. I need the pill. I mean...
0: If you think about the the simulation hypothesis, then we're probably a simulation within a simulation within a simulation, and the matrix is just a simulation within us, so... You never know.
1: Once you get to the place where people are wearing like unraveling earth tone sweaters, (laughs) then you're in reality in the Matrix world when everyone looks like they're going to Burning Man in like 1994 or something. You
0: know you're in the real world when you see Jada Pinkett Smith. That's just like a a thing that I think is true in all realities.
1: (laughs) It is,
0: I believe, an element of how the... It is, I believe, an element of how the analyst played by Neil Patrick Harris is sort of controlling Neo's perceptions of reality. I think, again, with my sort of trauma-informed reading of this movie, I think it is a moment when Neo is having a pretty intense Understanding of a thing that's really happening, and then him just sort of rapidly suppressing it so he doesn't remember it anymore, and then going into therapy where it is reduced to, in essence, a thing that happened one time but wasn't that big of a deal. But because Neil Patrick Harris is, you know, an agent of the Matrix, uh, actually the creator of this new matrix. We can say that. this is a spoiler podcast. Um, the creator of the this new matrix, he has to like make Neo think it's a hallucination when it is really, to me clearly something that happens that he then just sort of is ejected out of by the programming of the matrix.
1: Once they do finally break on through to the other side, uh, into the, the, the spaceship, let's, let's learn something about the crew that's there. I mean, this is a pretty undifferentiated crew, I found, except for the Bugs character. Like, there's, there's nobody who's that memorable in that world. Um, but, but they do become very important to the story, so we should get some sense of, of what things look like once Neo gets back to the ship.
0: There are a couple of characters. There's a guy who's constantly, like, beaming into the Matrix reality, but, like, as a hologram, and he is a very important character... And then there's Lexi. Uh, I don't know if she's an important character, but I spent the whole movie shipping her in bugs. Like, I wanted them to get together. And there's a moment of sheer lesbian yearning between them toward the end.
1: (laughs) I thought it was implied. I know exactly the moment you mean. And I thought it implied that they were together. I kind of thought, oh, they're a couple at that moment.
0: I thought so, too. But I think they should have just said, yes, we're married and we're registered at Williams-Sonoma. I liked the scene that we referred to earlier where all the characters are like, Neo, I'm your biggest fan. I remember you. You're great. And like, yet at the same time, yes, these characters are a little bit undifferentiated. It does feel like there was a fair amount cut out of this movie. Um, Like Christina Ricci pops up in one scene, but is relatively high build, which is usually a sign that they cut some stuff out.
1: And so but there's no digital Christina Ricci, which is so sad. Weren't you waiting for her the whole time?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe she'll be like the main character of the sequels. Um, But, you know, I do feel like when we get to the ship, the first Matrix does a similar thing where the crew is not really that distinguishable. And yet, you know who every single one of them are. You know their names. Like, they're perfectly cast. They're perfectly costumed. They're perfectly, like, chosen in terms of what their names are. And here, you just kind of don't have that. And I think that is one of the the weaker points of the film. That said, that scene where they all meet Neo and they're like, I'm your biggest fan, I think is an interesting and, and compelling scene. And I do wonder if there's just a subtle bit of commentary on how... Eventually fans all blend together. Also Lexi and Bugs Forever. They're in love and they're good together.
1: <laughs> but that's why we needed more of them. More or less. There were just there were too many teases. And there was just there was no Joey pants, you know, there was nobody yeah. that really stood out. And you were sitting there wondering, like, what are their motivations? Where are their loyalties? You know, I just felt like they were getting the gang back together, somewhat generic crew.
0: And I do think that one of the things that made it work for me is several of those actors are from the TV show Sensei, which was the Wachowski's project before this Matrix movie. And like I Watched every episode of that and loved every episode of that. And a lot of the creative team behind that series is working on this movie. So I feel like if you're a Sensei fan like me, you'll see those actors and glom onto them, and that's in that way. Um, in the original film, Joe Pantoliano was from the Wachowski's previous film, Bound, but like also, you know, he was a well-known character actor. The actors from Sensei have not broken through in the same way. And I do wonder if that's part of why they're not as immediately recognizable.
1: Yeah, they're and they're not go-to character actors, which makes it interesting, right? I mean, the idea of having a sort of company of actors that, that you work with from from project to project is a great one. The part about the the universe that I wanted to talk about as well is how the relationship to technology, the the franchise's relationship to technology seems to have changed and evolved so that machines occupy this different kind of softer space that's somewhere in between sentience and, and artificiality, right? Or, or, or mechanical construction.
0: Yeah, there's there's machines that are on the side of the freedom fighters. They're- There's people who are on the side of the Matrix. This movie is really trying to complicate your ideas about who is oppressed and who is the oppressor. The, The Matrix movies have always been sort of forthrightly leftist tracts, but they've been built atop this very basic idea of there is a clear recognizable power structure which you can always understand. And this movie is very much like you can't always understand who's in charge and who's not in charge. And like there are deliberate attempts throughout to complicate the blue pill, red pill binary, which I couldn't help reading into the fact that the red pill has become this sort of uh, anti-feminist, misogynist symbol on the internet. Like, Bugs is the main new character, and her hair is blue, and she frequently dresses in blue. The new Morpheus dresses in red every so often. Like, it is an attempt to complicate the binaries established by the original films in really cool and compelling ways and going even further than the two sequels. The two sequels were very much about how these binaries are not real and you need to reject them and the actual understanding of reality is much more complicated. This movie's just sort of like yeah, you there are things that you could t- you think you can take for granted that you should not take for granted. And I think I think if there's a a point in which my interest lagged a little bit, it was in this section, but I found it philosophically compelling, so I sort of didn't care.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like this movie had had some energy drops when it was trying to exposit, you know, some some stuff about the world of Zion. And, you know, this all these sort of philosophical and metaphysical uh, sort of ideas of non binariness that run through the whole movie. And it's really powerful in the way that those those concepts land, even though they're not extremely well explicated, and they're not being talked about by characters that are all that, you know, memorable all the time. But the ideas themselves are interesting enough that it still sort of sweeps you along. I mean, Basically, I was able to enjoy this movie by giving up to some degree on understanding and letting it just be this series of shifting moods and ideas.
0: And I think that's kind of the ideal way to enjoy a Matrix movie, you know? Like, I'm I'm all the way in. I'm deep down the rabbit hole. I, I understand all this stuff. But, like, absolutely, the best way to do it is just to sit back and be like... Here's a bunch of stuff people are saying, and it sounds interesting. That's fun. I will say, I I think one of the things this film does really compellingly is it uses color really well. Um, it uses red and blue in particular. Uh, the original Matrix was so green and kind of gray, and that was like stylish at the time. And now that's an overdone aesthetic. So this film really, like, when you're in the Matrix, it's kind of warm and homey in a weird way. And then red and blue are used to great effect throughout, as are visuals from the original film and. Quotes from the original film in, in inverted and interesting and colorful ways. And I think that's particularly true when we get to the new city of Io, um, which is not like not clear where it is. It's somewhere under the surface of the earth. I think they apparently have an artificial sky. I know this because I talked to the production designer, like I didn't just get this from the movie. Um, but yeah, I I Io is in and of itself a much more complicated and much less direct version of Zion. You know, there's machines working there, they're growing strawberries. It is like really trying to envision what would a utopian society look like. And again, it would have Jada Pinkett Smith at its head, which seems right.
1: Yes. And we must talk about her character and the very unusual kind of role that she plays as the leader of of Io in this portion of the movie. But first, let's take another break for a quick word from a sponsor. All right. So back to Matrix Resurrections. We were just about to talk about Niobe, the character played by Jadick Pinkett Smith, who, as we meet her in the middle of this movie, right, as we as we get back to the city of Io, the real world, you know, the place where people are awakening in their pods from their Matrix dream. um, Can you talk us through that scene where we see her, you know, very harshly commanding the troops on Io?
0: Yeah. So Niobe is this figure from the sequels who I think the degree to which you love Niobe is directly uh, related to how much extra textual content you consumed of Matrix stuff. Um, She's present in the Animatrix, the uh, the direct-to-DVD series of anime shorts based in the world of the, the Matrix. She's in the video game, Enter the Matrix, which I've never played, but which I have watched the cutscenes from on YouTube because I'm a weird person. But she's this character who is the skeptic of the second and third films, who comes around to sort of believing in Neo and so in this movie, it's kind of pointed that she's like, you know, I'm not sure I ever really believed. I think I just kind of wanted to to believe. She's in charge of Io to some degree. Everyone refers to her as General, and she grounds Bugs for uh, undertaking this incredibly dangerous mission to free Neo from the Matrix. She ends up being kind of a mild antagonist within the film, but also clearly on the side of good. And I think that it's part of the movie's exploration of different leadership styles that is kind of interesting, but I don't think it hits with some of the heft of some of its other ideas. I just want to say, I think the old age makeup is pretty good. Like, I, she looks believably old.
1: Yeah, I was wondering if it was digital makeup at all that they had on her, because it's it's really convincing to the degree that I thought, wait, did they did they digitally age her or find find an old person who looks like her? She also moves like an old person, even though she has the body, of course, of like a gorgeous Hollywood star. <laughs> and she managed, she did, does manage to move her frame in, in a very convincingly old person way. The thing that I wanted to note about her, and I think this goes back to something you were saying about, you know, all the the bin- binaries that are melting all around us is that she doesn't just say, I wanted to believe in you, and now I'm not sure I ever did, but the one, right? I mean, the concept of of being saved, which I know that from the very first movie, that's something that, you know, people have debated. But if you watch in the context of the first Matrix, you know, when, when Keanu's Neo is doubting if he is the one, it's, it's less of a question of whether that sort of savior narrative is workable. I think that may come up to some degree, but it's more like, does he have the self-confidence to accept that he is, in fact, the one, right? And yeah. that is not... The question at at stake here.
0: And I think that first movie is really smart in that it's kind of both. You can read it as like a self empowerment tract, or you can read it as maybe there is no one and we all need to sort of figure out what we have to do. And that latter idea is what the Wachowskis double down on in the sequels and then in this movie. And I, I think that that is part of why people found the sequels so alienating. They essentially say the Chosen One narrative is a myth and that you yourself are in charge of your destiny and the only way to change. The world is for all of us to band together. But that sounds like a lot of work, Dana. I don't know. I don't like leaving my house.
1: Yeah, I feel like people don't want a polycule to be the one, you know? (laughs) I prefer just like a single solitary figure, preferably a man. But Emily, we've gotten so far into this movie and we haven't really yet talked about the central love story, which, as you said, was one of Lana Wachowski's inspirations for creating it in the first place, which is the love between Trinity and Neo, right? The couple of the original movie, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss. Um, and in order to talk about that and how it happens in the non-Matrix world, we have to talk about Tiffany, who we forgot to bring up when we were in the frame story. But Tiffany is really uh, an important iteration of of Trinity, one that we could not have really imagined before. Tell us about Tiffany in the back in the Matrix world.
0: Tiffany is it seems to be a soccer mom. Um, she has a husband and two, maybe three kids. Like there are three names mentioned, but also she only ever seems to have two children with her. So um,
1: the other one is just narrative bait, who has to be off screen with a broken arm, right? Yeah, so she, she has to run to her. But wait, as long as we're talking about names, don't forget that her husband's name is Chad, which got a huge laugh in the theater. Yep. when we yep.
0: did that, Chad and and Chad and Tiffany and uh, Tiffany is Tiffany is just Trinity and like you've seen these movies you know she's Trinity and like Neo looks over at her and sort of longingly is like oh there that's someone I just really am obsessed with and like it is very interesting to me the way that this movie posits that, like, what makes this new Matrix run is the fact that they're always kind of longing for each other, but never able to get together, because it is such an interesting commentary on, like, what we want as fans from the various projects that we we adore and love. But also, like, it's just – they just are good-looking people, and they just have really good on-screen chemistry, and they're very good within this movie at dumb doling out scenes where the two of them can kind of stare longingly at each other and have like interesting, thoughtful conversations. And then the whole climax of the movie is basically, can these two 50-year-olds fix their broken marriage?
1: And how does that play out? Tell, tell us how that plays out in the, uh, in the world-saving aspect of the story.
0: So the main idea of the third act of this movie is that Neo and Trinity can never be together, or it will destroy the Matrix, because obviously it did in the first three films. So they're kept in close proximity to each other, but in a state of longing that they can never entirely overcome. They're kept that way by Neil Patrick Harris, who his analyst turns out to be the, uh, the successor to The Architect from the first trilogy, who is the character that a lot of people bounced off. He's the old bearded man in the room at the end of Reloaded who gives a whole speech about how the idea of chosen ones is false. And Neil Patrick Harris was like, I had to keep you two in suspended longing for each other to power the Matrix. So the end of the movie is Neo and the crew of the ship having to go in and get her, but she also has to make the choice – to leave behind this life, this very nice life where she has a family and she gets to work on motorcycles, but she just feels vaguely unfulfilled. And there's something interesting in this movie about systems of control. And it presents like this system of control of Trinity, which is like her family, where the movie is like having a family is a good thing, but when you make it your entire identity, maybe that's not a good thing. Similarly with like um, the various uh, presentations of Neo as genius game designer neo as trauma survivor neo as this person who's in therapy there are all of these systems of control over these two characters and in the end, you know, they just are—they just can't be kept from each other. They just—they just have to be together. My favorite uh, shot in the whole movie is when they're being swarmed by various people in the coffee shop, and they're reaching out for each other, like trying to grasp hands. I found it extremely romantic. And then they got on a motorcycle.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I mean, we'll get there. But the last few minutes of this movie have some stuff that is so unbelievably hokey about their romance, but, you know, if if you're right there with them, it's incredibly moving. And I thought everything that happened between the two of them was was super moving. There's also some radical, radical stuff that goes on in relation to motherhood and her character, right? Because Mm -hmm. essentially... Once she realizes, and she doesn't have very long to realize it, unlike Neo, she doesn't get a lot of, you know, a backstory explained by Yahya Abdul-Mateen in, in a yellow suit, right? She's just, as far as she knows, meeting a guy in a cafe that she sort of knows and is basically being told, everything you're experiencing is a simulation. You have to decide right now whether you're abandoning it all or not, right? And. Yeah. Uh, And she does. And there's kind of no looking back. And then later on, remember, she says to Neil Patrick Harris, you know, as she's sort of like uh, ripping him apart digitally various times, she says, this one is for using children. Right. So, I mean, she just essentially bags the whole digital parenthood world (laughs) without a look behind. And and, and in terms of one of these kinds of movies, that's that's pretty radical.
0: Yeah, it's it's wild. The degree to which it is willing to sort of say, I mean, it's pretty clear that her husband is a Matrix agent bad guy. kind of thing. Not a bad guy, but just like a guy who's been placed there to sort of keep an eye on her. But yeah, the kids are like pretty clearly just kids and like she runs away from it all. And if there are sequels to this, I assume that sort of the consequences of that would be dug into, but I found it... I found it incredibly radical and incredibly liberating and incredibly interesting. Um, And I think the reason it works is because those kids are ciphers and you don't actually think about their existence that much. But once you do start to think about it, there's a really compelling idea in there.
1: Yeah, I mean, they could always try to go back and rescue them, I guess, in future sequels. But it really, it also goes with the trinity we know, right? The the kind of the the radical nature of her character in the earlier movies that, you know, once, once she got killed and once she she knew what was going on, she would leave it all behind.
0: Yeah. And it's really the the story of these these films is about, you know, the the character of Trinity being constantly this beacon of what freedom looks like. And so placing her within a context where she's just a soccer mom. And I use just liberally, like the idea within the film is that, you know, Trinity is destined for great glory. But mm-hmm. There is something in that scene where she chooses Neo over her family that is like, yeah, choosing her family is a valid option. Yes, it's going to uh, reestablish the Matrix as this system controlling everyone, but also like, you know, it'll just return everything to the way it was at the start of the movie. This movie is very interested in loops, and I think it is interesting to think about family life in terms of loops. and. I like that this movie simultaneously uh, demonizes and does not demonize her choice.
1: So then the crucial moment at the end is one that, again, calls back to at least the first movie. You can tell me other moments and the, the other two that it might call back to as well, where, as you say, Trinity is called upon to sort of reach the next level, right, to, to find the next level of, of, of power um, in her Matrix self, her digital incarnation of herself, and this is the moment I was thinking of when I was saying like there could not be a cornier ending to a sort of sci-fi romance than than this moment. But if you have enough invested in this romance, I think it works sort of incredibly.
0: I think the action climax is is quite good. I think it is not quite as good as the uh, the port the portal chase earlier in the film. I did find myself very moved when they were on the top of this enormous building and they sort of had to figure out if they could fly. And they jump into the air. And of course, Trinity is the one who can fly because in I think within this movie, she's sort of loosely coded as the one, even though there is no one. And I liked... Sort of the boldness of being like, yeah, this time it's Carrie Ann Moss who has all this power. And like the final scene of the movie is her beating up Neil Patrick Harris while Keanu Reeves looks on and pets a cat and tosses out zingers. (laughs) It's great.
1: Well, what I was thinking of in that scene is it's just, it's such a a design for living as far as a a romantic. (laughs) Right that you get to kind of like destroy your enemy over and over in horrific ways while your partner sits there and snickers.
0: Yes, yes, that's all I want from my marriage. That's all I want. (laughs) It's such a such a cool visual. It's such a nice idea. What I love about the Wachowskis and what I think kind of has kept them from making anything as big as The Matrix again is they're so corny. They're so sincere. They're so invested in the idea that like life is worth living if you can find people you want to live it with. And ultimately, The Matrix sequels and then this movie are are about that idea that like Neo and Trinity are just drawn together. And they want to be together. And there's something powerful and and absorbing about that idea of finding the one person who – who completes you, so to speak. And like, obviously there's a lot of movies about that, but like it's rare within sci-fi to have that be as big of an emphasis as it is here.
1: And and to have it also be the narrative driver, right? Yeah. I mean, it might, it might be the case in a lot of uh, world-saving kind of movies that there's a, a, a couple who is, you know, who are the ones to us who we want to get together with each other. But the idea that it's actually their passion that's somehow driving the universe, that's like the fuel in the engine, you know, yeah. that seems like something new.
0: Yeah, and it's such... It's just such a compelling notion to build this movie around. I do want to just briefly call it, I think the best joke in the movie is when Neo uh, is like trying to fly and Keanu Reeves just shakes his head and says, no, I can't. Um, when they're uh, when he
1: jumps up in yeah. the air, you mean on the sidewalk earlier <laughs> yeah. on? Yeah, that's a great moment. Yeah. And he's, I mean, he's a great physical comedian. He always has been Keanu Reeves, right? I mean, we think of him as an action guy, but he also knows how to move comedically. It's part of why the Bill and Ted movies are so funny, because he creates a whole, you know, language for that character. Yeah. And I just, I actually loved that the sort of failed stunt there, you know, in his in his jump off the sidewalk. I even noticed in the costuming and I'm sure this was deliberate too that they had his shirt sort of like hike up, you know, so he was basically like exposing his belly and then just sort of shamefully thumping back to the ground.
0: Uh, Here's a a real spoiler. I think Neo is the only character in this movie who never wears sunglasses. I think everybody else does.
1: In this one only or in the entire Matrix series? In this one only.
0: In this, like in the whole series, everybody wears sunglasses all the time and in this Neo, I think never once wears sunglasses. I'm, I'm sure someone will prove me wrong, but that was like, I was watching this movie because they make so many like interesting choices in sunglasses. Like the the costuming department clearly had fun with that. And I don't think he ever does.
1: Hmm, I wonder what that's supposed to mean. Maybe it's all going to be woven into the, into the technology (laughs) somehow later on.
0: Lana's going to call me and tell me what it's all about. I'm sure.
1: (laughs) Um, All right. Do you have anything else? Do you have any last thought or place that you want to send this?
0: I do think one of the things that this this film series has become known for is being probably the most significant series of films directed by trans people. And the Wachowskis were not out and openly trans when these movies came out. Um, there's some discrepancy on timing and all of that. But I do think what is fascinating about this is those first three movies are made by uh, trans people who are coming to terms with their own identities – and this movie is made by somebody who's you know been out for a while, has been living their life for a while. It is very much a movie about like the moment in your transition – I am a trans woman, everyone. Hello. Uh, the moment in your transition when you just sort of realize a lot of these binaries that we build our lives around, not just the male and female one, are just kind of arbitrary and made up by society as a way to keep systems moving. And sometimes they are systems of control. So this movie is, I think – much less uh, interested in sort of the trans allegory aspects of the original films, which I'm sure some trans folks will be disappointed by, but it's extremely interested in ideas of how reality, as we think of it in almost every way, is an illusion that we've all made up together. And we can make up a new one together if we want to. The literal end of this film is Neo and Trinity being like, we're gonna take over the matrix. We're gonna make changes to it. We're in charge now. And if they do make more movies, I think that's an interesting setup.
1: I mean, that you just said that so beautifully, I don't have much to add. But something that is really evident, even if you don't understand every every mythological point of the franchise or every, every even plot point in the story of this movie, is that the transness of this movie is all pervasive, you know, it doesn't have to do with a certain character. And as we were observing coming out, there isn't even a character who is, you know, framed as trans, transgender specifically. Everyone is trans everything, yeah. right? I mean, there's that guy we haven't talked about much, but as you said, who's sort of like a hologram or a digital representation of the Yahya Abdul-Mateen character, right? But who's always kind of falling apart into bits because oh, he's yeah, made yeah, of yeah. streaming kind of fragments. And I mean, it goes so far beyond like, are you male or are you female, right? It's like, are you human or are you or are you machine? Are you past or are you present? Like all of those things are collapsing and flowing together in this movie, which makes for something that's really intellectually exciting, even if it's confusing as hell.
0: And I think it's, I think it goes beyond transness to the tech of it all. When we live so much of our lives online, why are we letting ourselves be defined by these systems that were invented in worlds where the digital world didn't exist? And I think if you look at like people who are younger than me, people who are Gen Z, like that you see so many of those like boundaries falling away, like the world is changing radically online. And I think that this movie is tapped into that in an, ex- in an exciting way.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think I would have to say I mean, as as film franchises go, I don't think that there is one about the internet and about sort of the, the digital future that we are all living in and trying to figure out in real time, right, in the way that these movies have been. And so while not a super fan like you, like, I tip my hat to these movies' absolute originality on that score.
0: And I do think one nice thing in talking to my friends who've seen this, people who are Matrix fans, people who are Matrix skeptics, is people do seem to have sort of grasped what the Wachowski – uh, Oeuvres, you know, this idea that these movies are ultimately like, even if they seem to have wild tonal clashes, like there is something animating all of them and it's more sincere than people gave it credit for at the time. I'm heartened by the way that people seem to be engaging with this movie on its own terms as opposed to how often the Wachowskis films have been sort of written off as like, well, that was weird. Like this movie's weird, but with purpose. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, mentioning their other films, I just have to throw in that this made me think of Cloud Atlas oh, sometimes. Yes. You know, there were mm-hmm. elements to this movie that even just the look of it, the look of the utopia, yeah. you know, had a little bit the look of that post-apocalyptic utopia that Cloud Atlas imagines, where it's 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 dystopic, but it's sort of organic, you know, and the fact that they're interested in what might the world look like after everything falls apart, you know, besides the way that it's always imagined, which is just the Terminator and grim machines marching around, right, and all bad, and it's a dystopia. What might utopia look like, you know, but with all all of the disaster still present.
0: Yeah. And I think it's a really it's a beautiful vision of that idea. And I, I, I was reminded of Cloud Atlas too, which I think is 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 their best movie. Um but yeah, I was so happy that this movie didn't pull punches. I'm really interested to see what people make of it. <laughs>
1: And Emily, we should say there is a post credit stinger. <laughs> I don't think it seems like a tease of another movie, but can you describe what happens there? And actually, maybe as a, as a super fan, you'll know whether it seems like a tease or not. Oh, it's not.
0: I will tell you this. As a trans woman, I know that this is the thing that most marks this film as being made by a trans woman because it is a post-film shitpost of the sort that only a trans woman on Twitter would make. It is uh, a short sequence that it seems to be cut out from the montage earlier of people trying to figure what the Matrix is, of two characters realizing that the way that they can get people invested is cat videos, and they should make something called the Catrix. And when I saw this movie, I saw it at a pretty early screening. It was just me and a bunch of um, older men, and they were all so mad because the, the publicist had told us to sit through the film, and they were so mad at this final scene. And I was just having a delightful time. Because it's such a shit post. Lana Wachowski, <laughs> let's hang out. I would think we'd have such a good time. <laughs>
1: All right, so then I'm gonna to have to ask you, like, it what is it? What's the joke that it's making? Is it just pure? Is it like rickrolling the audience for having stayed in the first place?
0: Yeah, it, it's literally like, oh, you sat around through all of this. Well, here's a kind of funny joke <laughs> that's actually not that funny, but is funny if you think about it in terms of you just had to wait for this. I loved it. Also, I get why it makes people furious.
1: That is hilarious. I honestly thought that maybe, maybe it was coded in some way that for a super fan it meant like that's what's going to happen in the next but no it's just the Catrix. it is what it appears to be
0: i think that they should make a remake of the first trilogy with cats like i'd watch that
1: (laughs) absolutely all right well whether with cats or no will you come back if there are any further iterations please of the matrix universe and talk about them with me i would love to oh that would be a delight all right that's it for our show thank you all so much for listening our producer today was asha seluja for emily vanderwerf i'm dana stevens we'll talk to you again soon